This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Stanley Hauerwas is the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Theological Ethics at Duke University, where he holds appointments in both the Divinity School and the Law School. He has written an entire library of articles and books dating from 1969 to the present. He is a board member of the Society of Christian Ethics. He's associate editor of a number of Christian journals and periodicals and a frequent lecturer at campuses across the country. He holds his Ph.D. from Yale University and a Doctor of Divinity from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. His most recent work is Approaching the End, Eschatological Reflections on Church, Politics, and Life. Professor Hauerwas, you have been an ongoing conversation partner with me, perhaps without even knowing it. Uh, I, I read everything you write and always find a great deal in it uh, that makes me to think. Sometimes, quite frankly, that aggravates me. Other times, that, uh, that that pleases me. You are one of the most unusual writers and thinkers that I engage with uh, quite regularly. Your newest book is entitled Approaching the End, Eschatological Reflections on Church, Politics, and Life. How in the world did you get there? Um, well, eschatology has always been at the center of my work, and I thought it was time to um, try to make that ex- as explicit as possible. Plus, I'm 73. I'm approaching the end, <laughs> and uh, I'm realizing that death is not a theoretical possibility even for me. So I thought that uh, the title had a double entree, Andre and in a way that um, would show the interrelationship of those themes. Well, the themes of your life are so well documented in your writing and the the, the major streams of your thought. And there are so many of them I I would like to to just pursue with you a bit. But in this book, I'll tell you, the most interesting essay to me is the one entitled Church Matters on Faith and Politics. Because in in this essay, and and the, the book is actually a collection of very very uh, pointed and perceptive essays, you make a a stunning point, and that is that the church in the Western world is losing its ability to maintain any identity. You write that the church is in a buyer's market that makes any attempt to form a disciplined congregational life very difficult. Is this just part and parcel of the modern age, or is this a characteristically American moment? I honestly don't know um, how to answer that, Al. I I think it's certainly the case that America is the prismatic example of it, but I suspect it's true in most places because basically a buyer's market, that very description, uh, reproduces the presumption that you live in a, a demand economy that says that uh, the buyer uh, uh, is supreme and they get to buy what they want. And therefore, I mean, if, I mean, you know, I tell my students, for example, that if, if they are to sustain their life in the ministry without self-hatred, there are two things they should not do. They should never have the Christian funeral in a funeral home. It is to be in the church, and they should never marry anyone off the street. And they say, well, if if we try to do that, they'll just go down to the church 
down the street and be buried in a funeral home or to be married married people off the street. And I say, yeah, but that's why they're a bad church, and you'll be a good one. <laughs> we won't have many members. So that's the way I think that it works, namely that the consumer gets to consume the kind of faith they want. The very next essay in this book, uh, you write about the end of Protestantism, and, and that leads me to ask a very personal question. Um, as an American evangelical Christian, do, do you think that evangelicalism is in many ways the, the quintessential representation of the American faith? And, and, and do, you, do you think that, uh, that even as you write about the church in general, I, I actually don't want to put a message in, in your mouth. I'd, I'd rather hear it from you. But, but I, I get the impression that when, when you look at American Christianity in general and American evangelicalism in particular— well, you, you appear to see a church that's looking less and less like a church. That's true. Um, I, I have great admiration for evangelicals for no other reason than they just bring such energy to the faith, and I admire that. But one of the great problems of evangelical life in America is evangelicals think they have a relationship with God that they go to church to have expressed. But church is a secondary phenomenon to their personal relationship. And I think that's to get it exactly backwards, that the Christian faith is a mediated faith. It only comes through the witness of others as embodied in the church. So I should never trust my presumption that I know what my relationship with God is separate from how that is expressed through word and sacrament in the church. So evangelicals, I'm afraid, oftentimes with what appears to be very conservative religious convictions make the church a secondary phenomenon to their assumed faith. And I think that that's um, uh, making it very hard to maintain uh, disciplined congregations. I have to tell you that one of the uh, one of the statements in, in one of your books that aggravated me was uh, a, a statement in which you said that uh, conservative evangelicals uh, should read this book, but they won't because they don't read this kind of book. And uh, actually, it aggravated me because I was reading it at the time. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> But I understood the point you were making. And and I want to come back and and just press you on this just a bit, because uh, as an evangelical concerned with many of the same things, I I just want to come back and and ask, when when you look at evangelicalism and you look at evangelical churches, what do you see as the particular moment that uh, that 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 uh, now presents us with a completely different set of challenges? In other words, be be a prophet for a moment. You, you, You can do that. And in other words, where is evangelicalism going to be, given the uh, the, the increasing secularization and uh, the, the hyper-modernity of, of our culture? Um, I think evangelicalism is destined um, to die of its own success. And um, it will go the way of mainstream Protestantism, because 
there's just it depends far too much on charismatic pastors and charism will only take you so far and you will constantly to ha- evangelicalism is constantly under the burden of reinventing the wheel and um you just get tired <laughs> i'm you know i i'm for example i'm a big advocate of morning prayer i love morning prayer we we do the same thing every morning <laughs> We don't have to make it up. We know we're going to say these prayers. We know we're going to um, uh, um, join in reading of the psalm. We're going to have these scripture readings. I mean, there's much to be said for Christianity as repetition. And I think evangelicalism um, uh, doesn't have enough repetition in a way that will form Christians to um, uh, survive in a world that constantly um, uh, tempts us to always think we have to do something new. Well, you are, uh, you're well known for arguing that uh, spirituality is, is practice and that, uh, that, that ethics is virtue, just, just to put it in uh, perhaps uh, too short a, uh, a com- compression there, but... Uh, when you look at American spirituality in general, there doesn't appear to be much practice or, or much emphasis upon practice. And, and no. is that because our congregations have lost that uh, that set of habits? Uh, I it's hard for me to generalize. I'm you know I I can't pretend to be uh, someone that has studied these matters from a sociological uh, point of view. Not that I particularly trust sociology. But I do think that um, uh, Hegel made the comment at one time Christians um, arose in the morning and said their prayers. Now they read the newspaper. <laughs> of course, that's changing, too. They probably look at their smartphone now. But exactly, I think that the fundamental habits of the faith uh, have uh, been in decline, and that leaves us with insufficient resources to sustain our lives as Christians in a world um, in which we find ourselves. I think, again, it has to do with uh, the loss of fundamental practices, such as um, reading the Bible, but reading the Bible, I don't trust necessarily to me as an individual. I, I need to read the Bible with other people, um, and that has pretty much been lost. Let me, let me say, one of the, in that regard, one of the other things that worries me about evangelicalism is I'm afraid it's got the Bible and now. And exactly how it is that you reconnect evangelical life with the great Catholic tradition, I think is part of the challenges for the future, because you need to read the Father's reading Scripture as part of our common life if we are to sustain a sense that we don't get to make Christianity up. 
we receive it through the um, lives of those that have gone before. And that just becomes crucial for us to be able to survive in the world in which we find ourselves. I find it very difficult to uh, predict sometimes where you're going to go when you begin an essay, or a book for that matter, or, or a sermon. And uh, I've also read your most recent collection of sermons entitled, Without Apology, Sermons for Christ Church. Oh, thank you again. But uh, as you surprise me, you always make me think. And uh, in your essay on the, the end of Protestantism, uh, and by the way, written at the same time that so many others are, are arguing the case or analyzing the situation from different perspectives, I, I had this question. Are, are, are you suggesting that Protestantism was a failed experiment or, or that it's basically been, uh, well, as you said, of evangelicalism has died of its own success? In other words, mainline Protestantism, the, the big brands of, of Protestantism, uh, now famously in decline in the United States. Uh, how do you explain that? What, would, what, what do you say about that? Well, Protestantism, by the very name, pro- protest, was a protest movement within the Church Catholic that um, never was meant to be an end in itself, but a reform movement for the Church Catholic to um, uh, criticize where it had gone wrong. Um, It has been successful. Um, I think uh, Roman Catholicism has responded fundamentally to many of what the Protestant revolt was about. But when Protestantism becomes an end in itself, rather than a reform movement that looks for and and desires Christian unity, and it, that can come in many different ways, then, as a matter of fact, we become unintelligible to ourselves. And uh, so, I, I re, I'm, I'm going to die a Protestant, Make let me be very clear. Uh, because I think I owe my Catholic brothers and sisters that continuing witness, um, and and therefore I am determined to uh, remain Protestant. Though I, after I, I taught 14 years at Notre Dame, I, certainly Catholicism leaves a mark on you. But um, um, I nonetheless hunger for Christian unity, in which, um, and at the very least, that means that Christians learn not to kill one another in the name of Christians, of being Christians, or or in the name of certain national loyalties, etc. Because people forget Christian unity isn't just uh, the bureaucracies getting together where no one loses their job, but it is the fundamental recognition that in this brother or sister, I see Christ for me. I think it was uh, George Lindbeck who uh, pointed out as a word of critique that you seem to have no interest whatsoever in institutional ecumenicalism. And uh, Yeah, uh, right. I've tried to respond to that, but uh, um, I've never been terribly taken up with, um, with uh, the ecumenical movement, um, particularly among the the Protestant uh, churches. I mean, uh, in effect, I'm, the buyer's market has meant 
that um, denominational identities have become less and less interesting. And so it's very unclear. I mean, what, what good would it be for Presbyterians and Methodists to become um, uh, united today? Uh, or, I mean, basically, all we've got is a certain kind of emphasis they try to find that makes them somewhat distinctive in order for them to get their buyer's share of the diminishing market. When Stanley Hauerwas talks about the buyer's market for religion in America, he's on to something that evangelicals ought to notice and notice very carefully. And that is, in fact, that that is indeed an apt metaphor for our society at large, but it is also, if we're not very careful, a dynamic that is experienced by many churches and denominations, not only in the Protestant mainline, where he mentions all those brand-name denominations jockeying to retain their membership and a declining membership base, but it's also the case that there are many in American evangelicalism who basically think of the gospel as something to be packaged and sold. The problem with that, of course, is that it is the same pattern as that which was the besetting sin of Protestant liberalism. Protestant liberalism sought to accommodate the message of the gospel to the larger and secularizing culture in order that it would be, well, saleable. It would be acceptable. But the Bible and the gospel can't be reduced to a product, and that's a warning that evangelical Christians had better heed and understand very carefully. Because just as there was that temptation amongst the Protestant liberals and perhaps the jockeying for position among the brand names of mainline Protestantism today, we can be involved in the same kind of strategizing in which we betray the fact that somehow we think the gospel is a product to be sold as well. And if it's a product to be sold, then like any other product that's successful, it has to meet the demands of the marketplace. And that is the antithesis of evangelism. In your writings, you also make another very interesting case that has direct reference to mainline Protestantism and, and perhaps an indirect reference to, uh, to evangelicalism as well. You, you argue that Protestant liberalism followed the apologetic strategy of trying to make the Christian faith rational in the aftermath of the Enlightenment. And, and yet, as, as you, uh, in conversation with several others, have, uh, have remarked, uh, Alistair McIntyre, I think of here in particular, that when, when liberals made the Christian faith rational, they, uh, they made the Christian faith irrelevant and unnecessary. Right. Well, I want to be careful with that word rational, because I think nothing is more rational than Christian orthodoxy. Uh, right. I think it was, I think the um, Nicaea uh, account of Trinity is an extraordinary um, uh, development that is a tradition thinking through its fundamental commitments in a, ma- in a manner that is um, intellectually compelling. So it's not so the rationality that I was criticizing was the kind of rationality that presupposed that there was some kind of reason qua reason that didn't reflect a traditioned, determined mode of investigation. So I want to say that uh, the problem with the response to the Enlightenment 
was it accepted the Enlightenment's account of reason as reasonable, which was a deep mistake. Well, I appreciate that clarification because I certainly emphatically agree that there's nothing more rational than Christian orthodoxy in terms of the right exercise of reason. But the attempt, right. to, the attempt to make Christianity rational in Enlightenment terms with uh, autonomous reason, uh, I just have to say, I, th- I think you make that point very compellingly, and it, and it leads me to wonder sometimes if evangelicals aren't methodologically sometimes following the same kind of uh, of trajectory that the mainline Protestants did, but just a century late. Uh, you know, perhaps we're arriving at uh, at least many evangelicals arriving at a new form of liberalism just about a century late. Well. Insofar, I think pietism and rationalism went hand in hand because each privileged the individual's um, presumed capacity for rationality um, in and of itself. And so insofar as evangelicalism has reflected that pietistic background, it interestingly enough, is the most determinative exemplification of rationalism. And, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I know evangelicals are not, are not necessarily fundamentalism, but I can't imagine a more rationalistic account of the Christian faith than um, uh, some forms of how scriptural inspiration is understood. So uh, I think um, uh, that's exactly right, that a good deal of contemporary evangelicalism um, has a kind of rationalism to it that um, is reproducing um, what um, Limbeck um, uh, identified in the nature of doctrine as the experimental expressive form. Well, I hope not to be guilty of that, but I, I, I speak as one who, uh, who clearly, as an evangelical, uh, feels the necessity uh, to defend the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints and to do so in the contemporary moment, and to make very clear that indeed orthodox biblical Christianity is the most rational worldview imaginable. So in thinking about the challenge on the other side of the Enlightenment where evangelicals as much as Protestant liberals is where we find ourselves. So let me just ask you, I, I, rather than wonder what would Stanley Harwas have us to do, let me just ask you, so, so, so what should we do? Um, well, I think the first thing we need to do is um, confess our sin, um, that we have pridefully tried to um, make our faith a faith that um, uh, suits us, and in particular, underwrite um, the American experiment as central to the Christian faith. So one of the things I think that we desperately need to do is recover the ecclesiastical center of the Christian faith in a manner that unites us with Christians um, around the world um, in a manner that um, frees us from some of the 
um, uh, frees us from the kind of nationalistic presuppositions that have gone hand in hand with American Protestantism. Okay, I, I certainly uh, that's called, that's yeah. called becoming Catholic. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate the critique. I, I, I often, though, in, in in reading your your works, come to this question. Okay, so what if 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 we handed everything over to Stanley Hauerwas? What would he do with it? In other words, you know, what, where, where would you have us to go? And uh, you know, for, for instance, I, I sometimes can't. Well, let yeah. me let me say yeah. one of the things um, I would have us to go is. Um, a much richer liturgical life than I think is the than is the case in many evangelical and Protestant mainstream churches. I think a recovery of the centrality of Eucharistic celebration uh, and why it is so central is just crucial for the future of the church. Okay, now that that really intrigues me. I'm not surprised by that. But in, in terms of uh, of the the shape and uh, and uh, substance of the of the congregation of the church of an ecclesial center, how does one become a Christian? In, in other words, that's another question I had in 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 reading uh, your works from beginning to end. Um, it, it, it there just isn't much reference to conversion. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I've stayed away from that term because it was it has been so associated with Billy Graham's um, football field um, evangelism. Uh, Billy Graham's football field evangelism and conversion is not without value, but to be a Christian means that from baptism forward, you were living a life of constant transformation in a manner that you are able to have the sinfulness of our lives located in a manner that through the good graces of others, I have some hope of living a life that is more, to use Wesley's phrase, perfect. And so I I think that conversion is the name of an ongoing process from birth to death that um, we as Christians are invited to uh, live. Well, again, looking at your writings and even preparing for this conversation and uh, and, and feeling the, the, the weight of your critique at many points and, uh, and, and just very catalytic thoughts, I, I came back to another question, and that is, for Stanley Hauerwas, what what is the gospel? What 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 is the good news of, of uh, that is at the center of the Christian faith? And uh, because I I think I could hypothesize several answers, but I, I'd just love to hear you to, to to respond to that. What what is the gospel? That through uh, Jesus Christ, very God and very man, we Gentiles have been made part of the promise to Israel that we will be witnesses to God's good care of God's creation through the creation 
of a people who once were no people, that the world can see there is an alternative to our violence. There is an alternative to our deceptions. There is an alternative to our unfaithfulness to one another through the creation of something called church. That's salvation. What about uh, the forgiveness of sins? What, how, how does the cross and, and atonement uh, 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 play into your understanding of, of then the gospel? Well, uh, I think that what it means to have our sins forgiven is you've been made part of a narrative that you do not have to justify the past in a way that means the past continues to haunt you because you are determined to live righteously. But interestingly enough, um, um, forgiveness of sins does is say that you do not have to be determined by the past because you have been given a future that is so compelling you don't have to constantly try to renegotiate um, a world in which um, you are trying to be righteous even though you're not. Very interesting. And and, uh, once once one understands the gospel in those terms, then uh, becomes a part of the faith and practice of the church, and is uh, is then shaped by the congregation's life and those those regular practices and what you describe as a rich liturgical life. Uh, what difference does it make uh, for that individual as uh, as a citizen of this world? To use Augustine's uh, dichotomy. To be in the earthly city, what 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 then is the role of that Christian and of uh, of the church in this earthly city? Uh, to tell the truth, very simple. Um, uh, just tell the truth and um, um, see um, uh, what kind of tensions that produces. Um, uh, the um, I think um, the. Augustine's two cities has too often resulted in a apology for Christians not really being Christian because the church is made up of sinners and non-sinners, um, or at least people that are not as sinful. But um, And therefore, you can't tell that much difference between church and world. Well... We are sinners, and that's a great achievement. And that, and the world doesn't know it is possessed by sin in the way Christians do. So there is a truthfulness to being able to be a Christian in a world that knows not God. Uh, that is our gift to the world, to be able to be a people of truth. Here's another one of the tension points I, I try to uh, to resolve in thinking about uh, about your proposal and the larger fabric of your thought. Uh, you did teach at Notre Dame, and uh, you speak with incredible respect of the Roman Catholic Church and of its tradition. 
and, uh, and and clearly, even as you speak of your determination to die a Protestant, you speak of uh, uh, you, the fact you have – in fact, you write about the sense of a Catholic identity that you have. But you write about the dangers of empire and uh, to, to, to such an extent that one of your critics says that uh, – that for Stanley Hauerwas, the original sin was a desire for empire. And, uh, and so, so I can't find any example in the history of the Christian church uh, better than the Catholic church in terms of making peace with that empire. Isn't that the problem? Uh, and, yeah. and can you have a Catholic <laughs> church without is. that? <laughs> but, you got, I mean, um, uh, um, is, I, I, therefore, I celebrate the fact <laughs> that... Um, uh, that the church, that the Catholic Church is uh, losing its control of Europe, um, and but but remember, I mean, one of the things that is so impressive about the Church Catholic is it's a church to poor, uh, and um, it does. I mean, we American Protestants, we can't imagine being. Um, a church of the poor. We can imagine being a church that cares about the poor, but we can't imagine the poor being Christians. <laughs> but Catholicism has done that in a way that is, interestingly enough, I think a very deep critique of empire. Well, you offer uh, a penetrating critique. That's one of the reasons why I, I, I never let one of your books pass by before it's pretty quickly read. Uh, just in terms of social location, you've taught at Notre Dame, and, and then for years now, you've been teaching at Duke University. The last time I saw you in person, I think, was in the Gothic bookstore there at Duke. Right. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, what a marvelous bookstore that has been. But, uh, it's well, it certainly is reduced. I, I, yeah, I, I've seen its new reduction, and it, it's sad that the old has passed away. Uh, I yeah. mourn that with you. But uh, but you are there at Duke, and uh, you know if there's any institution, I think, especially in the South, that represents uh, the uh, empire of reason and uh, and and frankly the empire of wealth when, when it comes to, uh, to this. So I just have to wonder: Does Stanley Hauerwas's thought exist mostly uh, within uh, an academic world, represented by the institutions that basically are the enemy of everything he talks about? Well, you know. Institutions like Duke are many splendored things, <laughs> and so um, I um, I try to um, I try to serve it as best I can um, without. Um, I mean, I, I don't. I, my way of putting it is, I don't have I don't have to lick the hand that feeds me. <laughs> so um, I hope that Duke University somehow, through accidental reasons, has a Christian theologian in its myths and many other good Christians around, um, uh, is an indication that um, it may be incoherent, but it nonetheless uh, um, is an institution that may have the possibility of making the world just a bit better. Back in 1989, you and your uh, colleague William Willeman, uh, now a uh, once and uh, and uh, now retired uh, Methodist bishop, wrote a book entitled "Resident Aliens," in which you argued, uh, based upon New Testament evidence and uh, and your own theological analysis, that, that that this is the proper way to understand the church and always has been. And uh, if I could summarize, it seems that you were saying that liberal. 
Protestantism was coming to a rather reluctant and uh, perhaps inevitable understanding that the, that the church is made up of resident aliens uh, in a culture where we once felt at home but but no longer. And, and it seems to me that it, it might well be that uh, that evangelicals are uh, are discovering the same thing, again, in this case, about a generation after you wrote that book. Yeah, the book is... The book has just come out with its 25th anniversary edition, in which Will and I, Will has a a forward and I have an afterword to it. So if evangelicals would find that useful, we would be very happy. Well, I think you'll probably find it widely read and and, uh, and much quoted. And by the way, uh, 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 Dr. Willman's second book on that, I wrote a review on in Preaching Magazine, and you won't remember this, but more than two decades ago, you wrote me a very nice letter thanking me for that review. And uh, just to, that, that's, again, not only do we love bookstores, uh, letters still matter. And I still have that yeah, letter oh, from I you and much appreciate it. it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not much of an emailer, but I write letters. Well, th- they will survive when the emails do not. So uh, historians and others will uh, will appreciate that. But when, when I think about the, the state of the church uh, and of Christendom uh, in this uh, post-Christian age, uh, you know, j- just to stress the point a bit further, it- it's clear that many of the things that trouble most Christians, you seem actually to celebrate uh, the-, the the end of Christendom and uh, and the collapse of-, of of a Christian worldview and Christian influence in the society. Just just play that out a bit. Well, I think, I mean, isn't it wonderful? We're free. Uh, 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 we, I mean, the idea that now that um, uh, that somehow or the other that America has to be a Christian nation. That's gone. We're free. Uh, now all that we have as Christians left is to say the truth. And I think that's a great um, a great thing God has done for us. Where then does that take us? Uh, in other words, what, what, what should we be thinking about as we anticipate, say, the next 20 years of Christian existence in America? And even though you're writing about eschatology in your early 70s, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that you'll be here for the next 20 years to uh, what do you expect to happen in that time? Uh, I think um, the church will be leaner and meaner and that uh, that'll be a very good thing and that we will discover how much we need one another for survival. Mm. And that's a very good thing. I hope that the world in which we find ourselves will be uh, not as violent as it has been, but I don't have much confidence in that. I think the humanisms that prevail in our world today are tempted to murderous um, um, forms of life that uh, there's little control over. I want to give you an opportunity here in closing uh, to speak to a, a largely uh, evangelical audience, that is a, a, a listenership of, uh, of, of at least a good many evangelical Christians, and, uh, and many of them young and thinking about the future. Um, as someone who, uh, who, who watches us and, and knows us and lives in a center where uh, evangelical culture is all around you there in, in North Carolina, as you think about these things, what would be your word? What would be your word if, if you were to write a letter right now to a young evangelical what would you say to him or to her? I would say, I, I wrote a letter uh, fairly recently to young people going to college, in which I said, we need you, so you must acquaint yourself with the great 
literature of our culture, which is a Christian literature, in a way that you become articulate for the world in which we find ourselves so that we will not lose our ability to be people of substance in a world of superficiality. That's what I would tell young evangelicals. You ended your book that is actually focused on eschatology entitled Approaching the End without ending it. It just it just stops. <laughs> That's the way all my work does. It just stops. <laughs> But an eschatology, I guess that sort of begs for a, a, a certain kind of closure. So if, if you did anticipate, uh, right, and you've written so many books, as you say, you, you can't count them and don't want to count them. Uh, no. But, but if, you, if you did have a final word, well, what would you want that, that kind of word to be? Be a person of joy because you are God's good creature who was created for the glory of God, which is joy. Professor Stanley Hauerwas, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Oh, thank you, Al. It's been lovely talking with you again. A conversation with Stanley Hauerwas is never boring. It, it can't be, because he's simply one of the least boring human beings I think who ever lived. As a matter of fact, in his books, and there are so many of them, he's often, at least in places, seemingly in conversation, if not in contradiction, with himself. And yet there are some persistent themes. He is a critic of American Christianity, of indeed modern and Western Christianity. He is a severe critic of the kind of Christianity that makes peace with the empire, whether it was the Roman Empire in the time of Constantine or the American Empire in terms of late modernity in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. He's also a man who very clearly, as a Christian critic, wants to accuse the church of reducing all of the truth claims of Christianity and and the gospel itself to a form of, of product marketing. And he points out that this was indeed what the Protestant liberals did when they sought to make the Christian faith rational on the grounds of a purely secular reason. And he pointed out very perceptively that when the liberals did that, they succeeded in making Christianity unnecessary and irrelevant. Because if all you need is autonomous reason in order to come to terms with Christianity, then you can live on that autonomous reason alone. But one of the most perceptive of his arguments is that modern Christianity has, has lost an understanding of the necessity of certain practices in terms of Christian formation. And, and this is something that particularly afflicts contemporary evangelicalism. It afflicts us because we often treat these things as if they are merely means by which the Christian can move into a deeper and deeper faithfulness. We actually do not treat them often with the seriousness in which we find them discussed in the Scriptures, where they're discussed as necessary means of grace, as necessary means of being authentically Christian. In other words, in the New Testament, you simply really can't envision a Christian who isn't reading the Scripture and and who isn't. A gathering together with fellow Christians in the life of the church who isn't involved in Christian service, who isn't deeply devoted to prayer. You have the entire New Testament as witness to this, and certainly something like the book of James. And so along comes Stanley Hauerwas, who's not an evangelical and has described himself as, as something like a high church Mennonite, a, a, a person who is largely famous for trying to resuscitate the Anabaptist tradition in terms of uh, the understanding of the church, and especially the church and the culture. And, and many evangelicals would wonder, How exactly do we involve ourselves in conversation with such a thinker? And the answer is, we read him on his own terms. This is a good example for how evangelicals need to read someone who isn't an evangelical. 
We read him on his own terms. We understand who he is. We understand what his basic worldview is, how he sees the world, how he understands the church, how he engages the scripture. And then we allow him to speak on his own terms. And this gets to a second point that evangelicals, especially evangelicals in this generation, had better understand very clearly. We desperately need critics outside evangelicalism to help us to understand not only the world outside, but also the temptations within. And that's where someone like Stanley Hauerwas is a very invaluable partner in terms of thinking through so many of the issues that evangelicals now face. We are living in a post-Christian age. Stanley Hauerwas celebrates that. Many of us find great reason for grief and tragedy in that. We see the, the inevitable loss of so much human flourishing and the descent into so much darkness, abandoning light. But at the same time, we have to be chastened by Stanley Hauerwas not to miss empire too much, not to miss that kind of cultural influence too much. Because he's exactly right. If we have to trade one for the other, we have to retain faithfulness and gospel witness and, and let the cultural influence go. But that gets to another one of my vexing issues when I read Stanley Hauerwas. What if he were in control? What if he actually got what he wanted? How would this high church Mennonite, this resuscitator of the Anabaptist tradition, how would this enemy of empire and, 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 and this one who is taught at Notre Dame and Duke Divinity School, how would he reshape the church and its beliefs and its practices and its understanding of its place in the world? The answer is, I am profoundly unclear about the answers to those questions. And a conversation with Stanley Hauerwest doesn't necessarily clarify them much, because after all, I think one of the other things we have to keep in mind as we're reading him is that he is writing in an academic world in which he's socially located at the University of Notre Dame and, and at Duke University, very privileged places. He is able to see things from that very privileged viewpoint, but I don't think he's actually able to see how they might be seen outside those social locations. That's not just a critique of Stanley Hauerwas. That's a critique of every single one of us. We are all socially located. We see what is possible to be seen from where we are. And that's why I'm in profound agreement with him that we need to have an ongoing, substantial conversation with the church, with the church through the centuries, with the democracy of the dead, with those who have gone before us, with the apostles, with the fathers, with the schoolmen, with the reformers, with the Puritans, and with so many others coming all the way down to the present age. And yet, if we do so, I think it's going to be a different conversation than the one that Stanley Hauerwas envisions. Now, in all honesty, I think it would probably be a different kind of conversation in many ways than what I would envision. But I will put it this way. I think there will be much more conversation about the necessity of holding on to certain theological verities of the faith once for all delivered to the saints in order that the church would have the right beliefs that would then be validated and supported by the right practices. I think Stanley Hauerwas is exactly right that you can't have disembodied truth. That, that, that is antithetical to the biblical worldview. Disembodied truth in terms of the church's understanding of the faith once for all delivered to the saints doesn't exist. That, that's why we have the church, and, and that's why it is the church that is to confirm and to defend that faith. And, and after all, it's delivered to the saints, that is, to the church. But there are definite truth claims that are made there. There, there are definite truth claims that are the essential focus, indeed, of that command given to the church. And so it seems to me that as we learn to hear the critique of Stanley Hauerwas in terms of how we so often reduce the gospel to a, a marketing plan and a consumer product, how we so often try to divorce spirituality from practice, 
how we so often want to talk about ethics as some kind of, uh, of intellectual formula rather than the assertion of the centrality of the virtues, uh, how we often want to want to have the power of empire behind us in order that we will have influence and in order that we can shape the lives and, and the worldviews of, of those who are individuals around us and, and those in the community around us and the larger culture around us. As much as we hear that critique, I think we have to be very much aware that we do have to make the issue of truth, of the truth revealed in Scripture, of the faith, that is, that faith that Paul talks about to Timothy is that pattern of sound words, very central. Because the reality is in this post-Christian age, those truths, those verities, those doctrines, those revealed realities are under sustained subversion. And only the church knows why they are so eternally true and why they are so transformative and why they must be retained if the church indeed is to exist and to persist, which the church will, not because of the church's energy and the church's determination, but because of the power of Christ, the risen Christ, who guarantees that his church will survive from this age into the kingdom yet to come. So I'm really thankful for that conversation with Stanley Hauerwas. I think reading someone like Professor Stanley Hauerwas makes me a more faithful evangelical. At the same time, and this would probably make him chuckle, it also makes me more evangelical. Because when I hear him talk, and when I read him in his books, it makes me think, you know, I really do hold to this evangelical identity and to our understanding of the gospel as primary and paramount. That being said, we have a lot to learn from those who are watching us. And I'm thankful that someone like Stanley Hauerwas is watching us. I'm thankful that he's writing, and we get to engage his writings. I'm even more thankful that today I got to engage him in conversation and to join with him in thinking in public. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Professor Stanley Hauerwas, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.